talk during the time of fellowship. Uh, we used to, especially early on in the church, have seasons where we say, all right, guys, go bless one another. And everyone just sits there and, and I, you know, I'm not going to budge on that five minutes. So it was a real awkward five minutes, but it's encouraging to see you guys welcome one, one another. And in many ways, that's what church is, right? Because if it's just about listening to a sermon, honestly, stay at home. Make your own bagels. I mean, these bagels are good, but make your own at home. Sit in your PJs. Why come out? It's to be with one another. So I'm encouraged to see you guys doing that. Um, I wanted to just quickly highlight, we've had this up here, um, just for you guys to know some of the stuff going on. Um, we don't talk about everything just because we don't want to spend half an hour talking about announcements. Just a lot going on at church this time. Much of it's detailed in your bulletin, so I encourage you to read that on your own. Also, there's a lot of information on the back information table. Check that out sometime during today as well. And just um, just with things like our community groups, different ways that you can serve here in the church, but also out in the community. Uh, if you're interested in baptism, meet the village. I would particularly want to highlight that. If you're newer to the church, we just do this over lunch after one Sunday. I encourage you to stay for that. Let us know so we can uh, plan that. We schedule that according to your availability. So we would love to do that and give, just give you a glimpse of what the church is, who we are. And things like Women's Fellowship coming up next Sunday evening, uh, just obviously pretty self-explained. If you're a woman, this is for you. If you're a man, it's not for you. If you're a woman, come out to this. Enjoy time getting to know each other. Because one thing we have to fight for, especially as a church gets larger, um, this is great. I love this expression of who we are, worshiping corporately. This is important. Some people say this is not important anymore in America. No, it's still important. We sing. We hear the word. We, we gather. But church has to also be beyond this. If it's just this, it's good. But that's like someone who goes to the gym to work out and all they do is work on their bench press. Like, you know, you know, some cats like that, right? They just go and they got these giant pecs, but everything else is like chicken legs and stuff. It looks weird. You're not going to be balanced. And part of our goal is to grow you as a balanced, holistic follower of Jesus. That's going to involve coming here to worship like this but also being with each other in different ways. So we, we just provide these different opportunities for you to get connected. Um, having said all that, preaching of the word, and we've been going through the series through the book of Romans, chapter 8, and just a quick word if you're um, just a kind of a sneak peek next Sunday. Uh, I'll be here, but I'm not going to be preaching, and that's not a bad thing because we've got a very special guest preacher coming in. Pastor Sean Wise from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is going to be coming in for the day. A uh, good friend of mine, amazing preacher, and again, we don't put our hope in how well someone preaches, but at the same time, it doesn't hurt when someone can preach the word of God. Uh, Pastor Sean Wise coming in, so definitely make plans to be here. You don't want to miss that. But um, in these other weeks, we've been doing the series to Romans called Riches, chapter 8. And, and contrary to what some people and maybe even in our neighborhood might think, this is not a get-quick-rich scheme. Um, my goal is not to have you guys come and talk about riches so that I can be rolling in my Hyundai with new rims. And, you know, get, um, that, that's not what we're talking about riches. Here we're talking about the deeper riches found in Christ, um, particularly in this chapter, Romans 8. And we've been going through, if you want to listen to any of the sermons, they're on, online. And we're looking at these two verses today from chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And to give us some context on what we're reading here, what Paul continues in this chapter, last week we received this, this amazing truth that God is ultimately working for the good of those who love him. That this idea that God truly cares for his beloved, that no matter what our circumstances may say, if you are someone who loves God, God is working for you good, that he will never let his beloved go. 
He's in there till the end. And, and those things are great. But if you're like me, when I, by that I mean if you're a sinner, I think it naturally begs this question, but am I one of those who love him? Because <laughs> these promises are great. Yeah, God's not going to let go. He's there till the end. But it says, for his beloved, so am I one of those? Have, am I one of those that have been called to be loved from before eternity? Am I one of those that he has predetermined that he will ultimately glorify? And these are really hard questions because they're based on our experiences. Because sometimes you feel like you're there. You're like, yeah, I do feel like I'm one of God's. I, I, man, I am living the life, right? I am living the faithful Christian life. I've been doing quiet time like every day. I've been praying. I think about God. I've been watching like Christian movies, whatever that means. You know, I'm, I'm like walking with him. But those times when perhaps I'm not living like the way I think a Christian should. Or my life doesn't look very holy moly. It doesn't look very edifying. It'd be one of those that you'd be very afraid of a secret camera following you around. You're like, oh, man, people church, church saw this. They would never, never let me sit in here again. I'd be like the biggest hypocrite. You know, those times when maybe Satan is shooting those fiery darts at you. Um, causing you to doubt that in the midst of your failure, in the midst of those times when you are just falling away from God, it seems like on a daily, regular basis, um, can you be sure that God truly loves you? That's what the enemy says. When you are falling, he he throws these darts, say, you know, all those promises, did he mean that for you? Because you sure as heck don't seem to be living that way. It doesn't seem to be your life. And it seems that this, this Satan... It actually seems to be in Paul's mind when he asks in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? Because he immediately after this switches from what to who. And, and you see these four questions that follow this in, in verse 31. He says, who can be against us? And in the next following weeks that we're going to see in verse 33, who shall bring any charge? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So he seems to be actually be talking about this accuser, this Satan, this adversary. And most of us, when we think of satanic work or we think about the devil, um, if you believe in that sort of thing, you tend to maybe think of like uh, the exorcist or something. And you think about like heads go, blah, blah, you know, like blah, puke all over the place and kind of crazy like d- demonic possession and like casting out demons in the name of, you know, you think of that kind of thing. And I'm not denying that. I mean, that could definitely be true. But the way that Satan works in most of our lives is much more subtle, much more sly. He's an accuser, just like we read here, just like these questions suggest. And Satan, he has this goal of trying to dismantle God's assurance of his love in your life. And he will do it in any way possible. Try to get you, try to convince you that all of these things you read about God, the truth of God, maybe they're true, but they're not true for you. Because look at your life. Are you kidding me? This is for those who truly love God, the really faithful, not a dude like you. I mean, that's what Satan tries to do. You know, it's almost like he mocks us saying, how can you possibly believe God loves you when you've had the week you just had? Are you serious? You know what you've done, right? You know what's going on. You know how, how could God love you if these things are happening in your family and you're going through all of these trials? How could God possibly love you? Are you kidding yourself? How, how can you sit there with a straight face and sing these songs about God's love? Are you serious? Come on, man. Get a grip. 
And, and, you know, when we think about Satan worshiping, again, we kind of have these ideas of what Satan were. We think of, like, people standing around in black robes and a lot of dark candles, and, you know, sacrificing goats and spilling goats. But we think of that as Satan worshiping. But when we look into scriptures, what a Satan worshiper actually is, is someone who doesn't worship God. I mean, that sounds a little direct, but the truth in scripture is you don't have a, there's no middle ground. You either worship God or you don't, which is worshiping Satan. So for Satan, just like God, his goal is to get people to worship him. His, his goal is to draw people to worship him just like we would worship God. And one of the ways he does that is by knowing the truth that worshiping God is very costly in our world. Um, you know, and if you've come in here for the first time and you're kind of expecting me from the front to tell you how cuddly God is and how he just wants to give you a big holy hug and just tell you everything's going to be okay and, you know, and he wants to sprinkle on some extra dollars in your bank account on top of that. And, you know, if, if that's what you're looking for, I'm, I'm sorry because you're just going to hate this today um, because God's goal is more than just this kind of cosmic teddy bear. He exists for his own glory Part of that is following him. It might mean life is going to look very difficult at times. It might look like you're an utter failure. It might look like things that you've prayed for for years don't seem to be happening. And it's going to force you to ask yourself, well, is God even there? And if he is, does he give a rip about my life? Because serving him, I've been giving all I have. I have been faithful. I've been going to a stinking church every week. I've been serving in this and giving in that and faithful in this. And it doesn't seem to be happening. God seems to be very absent. And, and at times then in this world, from a, from a fleshly point of view, serving Satan actually will seem to be less costly. And he will even put lies out there that if you worship him instead of God, your life will not have to be as difficult as it is right now. He does that. And some of you, you're experiencing that. You're thinking, man, that dude who shared the good news of Jesus told me everything was going to get better if I follow God. Man, if anything, I just feel worse because I actually see my sin and it's like hard and I'm struggling about things I never struggled with before. And darn it, I used to be able to just walk by people in the street and now I feel convicted. And, and, you know, life is difficult. Life is difficult. So how then, when life is difficult, how can we be certain, as it says here, that God is for us? Paul says in verse 31, to remember these things. What then shall we say to these things? What he's saying is, he's saying there are things to remember. And what he's referring to is everything that's come before that in chapter 8. In this glorious chapter, these riches, all the things, things like uh, verse 1, that those justified by faith are not condemned. You guys remember that from the beginning? There is no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus you know, in verse three, that God sent his son to condemn sin in the flesh. He wins Uh, things like throughout the chapter, God's spirit talking about a bodily resurrection and that the pain and suffering we go through are not for eternity. For some of you whose bodies hurt, who are growing through suffering, what a, what a just sign of hope that this is not all there is. You know, verses 16 and 17, talking about our adoption, our inheritance in the spirit, that God the Father calls us sons and daughters in the spirit. That as we looked at last week, that God's providence, God being in control, it assures us that he's going to keep working on this plan to make us more and more like Jesus all the way till the very end. He will not let go. He's not going to stop. You know, Orioles say we, we, we don't stop. God doesn't stop. Orioles will stop. Maybe this series. God will not stop. 
That's the truth. Sorry if that's hurting some of you right now. That's just truth. So when we summarize this whole chapter and look at all these different things that, that Paul says to remember, God can then say in verse 31, if he is for us, like all the ways we've learned here, who can be against us? If he is for us in all these different ways we just looked at throughout this chapter, and here's the evidence then in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So we see this common thing that our security, what we stand on, it's found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus died on the cross, he canceled debt. He conquered sin and death on the cross. And that's great love. But the love that Paul's talking about here is actually not so much the love of Jesus, but it's the Father who sent Jesus. That, that's who he's talking about here. That, you know, everyone knows John 3, 16, right? Famous, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's what he's talking about here. This father who would send his son. And as we learned in verse 15, you know, the God that we see here is, is not just this far off removed God. He's daddy. He's a daddy who adopts. And we, we, now we get to call him Daddy. We get to call him Papa. We get to call him Father. We get to call him Abba. Whatever it is, uh, this affectionate term that we get to, we have this amazing privilege. We get to use the same name for God that Jesus did when he referred to his Father. There's intimacy here. This is the Daddy who loves us through Jesus. So we see that this is talking about the love of the Father. It's Paul's also talking about here. How can we be sure that God has our back? How, that, how can we be sure that he's for us? It's the cross. It comes back to the cross. How can, when in your times of struggle, in your times of doubt, in your times of failure, in your times of feeling you want to throw it away, how can you be assured that all the things that are promised here will happen? It's the cross. That in order to save us, the father did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, as we see in verse 32. And, and, when we talk about the cross in recent times, a lot of Christian thinkers, they've been prone to think about the death of Jesus as a really political thing. You know, that Jesus, you know, he was this revolutionary and he rabble roused and, you know, he just got a lot of people all angry and angsty and you know, he was against the man and he got these band of followers and they overthrew the government kind of thing. And they were about to. So those who were in government said, oh, we need to put this down. And that's what the cross was, kind of a killing of this political movement. But then God used the cross. And, you know, I don't think that's totally off. I think there are some aspects where Jesus was a revolutionary in the spirit of, uh, of a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi. But we've got to be very clear that Jesus' death was not just some political movement. It was not just the overthrowing of some political coup. It was not just hijacking what could have been. Sometimes, have you ever thought, like with Dr. King, that, man, what if he had not been shot? Imagine what would have happened. Imagine him seeing with his own eyes what happened. We that's not what it was with Jesus. This was always part of the plan. A 19th century preacher, Octavius Winslow, he once famously said this, who killed Jesus? Who killed him? It wasn't Judas out of greed. It wasn't the Jews out of envy. It was his father out of love. The father killed him. It was the father who put him to death. And when you start saying stuff like that, there are some people that get really antsy. And you've even had some theologians say, 
Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I don't like that. I, I don't like this idea that the, the father would, that's like divine child abuse. That's not a kind of God I would worship. Christian, Christian love has nothing to do with that. Are you kidding me? Don't, don't talk in that. Don't make God to be some monster. That's horrible. The, the thing is, um, you know, and I, I understand that's kind of a weird thing to think about. The thing is, Jesus seemed to have a very clear understanding. That's what it was about. <laughs> I mean, when you look at the word here, um, because the, fa- the fact that the father did not spare his own son, it's more startling given the fact that Jesus wanted to be spared. If Jesus wanted to be spared, that's assuming he knew that there was something to be spared from. <laughs> it's not like this snuck, snuck up on it, crept up on him. And I want to be really clear. I'm not suggesting that Jesus was some unwilling victim. Because, you know, we see even in John 18 uh, verses like this where it refers to Jesus, his life. And Jesus says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. We're saying Jesus knew what was going on. It's not like he was some patsy and like God's like, father's like slapping him. Come on, man, it's time. You know, it, he knew what was going on. He laid down his life. But sometimes in the fear of diminishing the, the deity of Jesus, sometimes because we're afraid, because we have good idea that Jesus is fully God, we don't want to diminish that. Um, we somehow minimize his full humanity as well. That Jesus is fully God, yes, he was also fully man. And, and that's really, man, it would take like eight sermons to even try to unpack that, right? But it says fully God and fully man. Because we see that Jesus' work, his sacrifice, it, it wasn't some like fatalistic obedience. I mean, he seems to greatly struggle in his flesh. You know, you, if you read the account in the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus was arrested, we even see Jesus crying out to his father, that the cup of suffering may be taken away from him. It sounds like he was asking to be spared. It sounds like he understood that God, the Father's plan, was that he should not be spared. And he's asking, but could I be spared? And, and obviously he went on to yield to his Father's will. But I don't think that should diminish the urgency of his request here. I mean, Martin Luther, he writes this one thing where he said, no one ever feared death as much as this man. No one ever feared death as much as this man. Why would Jesus so fervently ask to be spared? Why would he pray and plead as it's described in scriptures till he was, it was like blood coming out of his pores because he was crying so hard and praying so hard and sweating so much. I mean, every person fears death, right? Obviously, all of us, we all fear death at a certain level. But Jesus' fear of death, it came from another level because he had full knowledge of what kind of death this was talking about. He knew what was coming because he knew that he would be experiencing the torment of the wicked and the damned upon his shoulders. And here's probably the most frightening thing. If you and I are a Christian, naturally we fear death, but hopefully there's also the assurance that one day, because we've been saved, We will be with God, that someone has taken away our guilt and our shame. Someone on the cross has took, we call that the atonement. Someone has stood in our place. Jesus knew there was no atonement for his death. He knew that he would be going to the cross, and it was he and him alone to take all the sin and wrath that was deserving a broken, human, rebellious mankind upon himself. There was no one who was going to take the shot for him. He was taking it alone. 
No wonder he's saying, Father, if I could be spared from this cup. And, and we, we read the description that the father turned his face away, right? We, we hear that famously described in songs. But I want to be really clear, even this idea that the father turned his face away, uh, sometimes the cross is mistakenly described as a place where the father stopped loving the son. And I don't think that's true in Scripture. I don't think that we see in Scripture that even on the cross, even though Jesus fully took on the the sin and wrath, that it meant that the Father stopped loving him. Because what that would mean is it would just minimize the radical nature of why the sacrifice was so great. Because the truth is, because of their close relationship, because of how much the Father loved the Son, the cross is the working out of that divine plan that had always existed in the Godhead for all of eternity, that the Father could not spare his Son, but that the Son would be the means through which rebellious and and a, a broken and a hurting humankind could be restored back to the Father. And this notion, it was clear to the divine mind and will of Jesus, but perhaps for a moment, it was veiled to his human mind and to his human will and the pain of what that involved. So I I think we can say that the father never stopped loving the son, but maybe it's just me, but when we look at the cross, doesn't it feel sometimes that the father loves us more than the son? I mean, when you read it, because you see what, what, Jesus went through and you see he was given up. Somehow in our kind of humanistic view, we can say, well, that must mean that God loves us more than Jesus because he let Jesus do that so that we could be saved. Well, he must really love us more than the son. And, and that's just not true. It, it's not true. And this, that's exactly what Paul is trying to convey here in this passage. What he's trying to say is, guys, recognize how deeply the father actually does love the son. Recognize how deep his affections for his son is. That how deep he loves his baby boy here for all eternity. Yet, see the extent to which he would allow his most beloved to be suffering for the sake of rebellious humankind. As much as the father loves his son, what does it say then when he would allow his son to be crucified for his enemies? Would God then do any less for those he calls his beloved children? That, that's the point of these verses here. It's saying, if you have any doubt that God is working in your life, if you have any doubt of his promises, if you have anything within you that makes you say, could this be true? Look at what God did with his own son. If he would do that for his enemies, how much more for you who are now called children will God go to to be with you? And that helps us to understand the promise at the end of verse 32 here. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And sometimes this verse, it's pulled out of context and and kind of pulled into a prayer meeting and saying, all right, you really want that down payment on the house? Or, man, you've been eyeing that car. Well, if God gave up Jesus, how could he not also give you the small little token? Of course he'll give it to you. Just pray hard. If God has done all this, how will he not also give you these little things come up this earth? And I I don't think it's really talking about that, but this is more speaking about the glorification we looked at last week. It's saying, how will God also not fully give us that then? How will not God fully bring us home? The gospel guarantees that we will be brought home 
on this journey to glory. If you have any doubt, and for those of you who are struggling, and maybe this past week you doubted whether you even know Jesus. You're like, if I knew Jesus, I don't think I would be saying the things I did. I don't think I would be treating my spouse the way I did. I don't think I would be like that to my kids. I don't think I would be like that in my private life if I really knew Jesus. I I don't think, I don't know if this is going to happen. God is saying here, here's the seal of my promise. If, if I've given you all of these other things, I promise you're going to get it. You're, you're going to make it. I'm going to bring you home. So for many of us then, the lies that Satan continues to haunt us with on our journey, it can be tied to this. At certain level, we don't fully believe that when Jesus died on a cross, that he really paid for all sin at that moment. We, when we hear that Jesus died on the cross, I mean, theologically, we know it. We know, yeah, fully paid, paid in full, Jesus did all. But there's some part of our psychology that still doesn't fully believe that he did pay for it all. And we believe that we still need to do something to make it up. So when you and I, when we're accused of our sin, when the enemy just throws accusations at you and and you don't believe Jesus fully paid for it all, it it manifests in some different ways. One example, um, when you are just encountered with your sin, and when, when God shows you how perhaps you've been falling and failing, some of you respond by just working harder to prove you're a good person. You're like, okay, and, and you just get your act into gear. You're like, okay, well, I'm going to just try harder then. I'm going to work that well, I, I better pray more then. I better get on my knees. I better pick up my Bible. I better read more. I better get more devoted. I better do all this. And again, that's not bad. Um, but what happens is if, if you're looking to these things to kind of make up what Jesus didn't do, you are either going to go really proud you're going to grow into that person who thinks, okay, I am doing it. And, and we all recognize those because they're the ones who walk around with their nose in the air up, up a little bit. And you can tell they've been having a good spiritual week. And they kind of look down on those who are not. You either grow really proud or you go really depressed because you say, this is how I should do it. Okay, God, sorry, I haven't made the cut. I'm going to try really hard this weekend. You try and you try. And if you're like me, oh, man, I failed. And you get utterly depressed. So you grow either really proud or really despondent. So some of us, we just try harder. Some of us, when we're accused by our sin, we respond by making excuses of why we sin. We, or we make excuses to try to say how we're really not that sinful. Or maybe we blame other people. Or we blame our circumstances. We blame the kind of family we came from. We blame our boss. And, and I want to I be really careful here. Um, I don't believe that it's a godly thing to say, you know what? Stop being a victim. Your past doesn't matter. Suck it up, man. What's wrong with you? I believe our past really plays a part in who we are. So some of you have come from very broken backgrounds. Some of who you are now, some of the ways that you have come to understand who Jesus is, is precisely because of some of your past hurts. Some of you come from very dysfunctional families, from physical abuse or sexual abuse or mental abuse or abandonment. Some of you grown up with bullying. So some of you grown up in abject poverty, and it's framed how you view the world. Some of you have grown up, whether yourself or others, in mental illness or physical illness. So I think it would be incorrect to kind of say, well, all of that doesn't matter. Come on, man. Jesus is enough, right? I'm, all of it is framed who you are. But here's the dangerous thing. If we look to that to kind of excuse how we stay, then we're not fully allowing God to work in our life. And we're saying, that's all I'll ever be. That's going to define me. 
and, and we end up playing the victim card when God wants to call us more than a conqueror and say, I'm enough for you. Even with what you've gone through, can you believe that I'm enough for you? So some of us, we work harder. Some of us make excuses. Some of us, and maybe, maybe you're right there, some of us just give up and say, you know, accuser, you are right. I am never going to make this. You are absolutely right. I am a loser. I am a scrub. I'm just going to throw the towel and forget you, God. I, I just don't have this in me. And sadly, some of us, we just turn away from God because we say, this is meant for more spiritual people than me. This whole Jesus thing, this is meant for those holy moly Bible thumper types. That's not me. I guess I was never meant to be. And maybe you can identify with one or perhaps all of these responses to a certain extent. If, if you do, can I welcome you to believe that when Jesus died on the cross and in his last words he cried out, it is finished, that he meant it is finished. <laughs> he meant I've got the bill. I've paid it in full. I covered the tip. I covered the whole thing. You can't add to it. You just trust me. Can you believe it that, that Jesus, when he said it's finished, it's actually finished? Because this is a radically different way to combat Satan's accusations against you. I, I love one thing Martin Luther is, is said to have um, written when he said, when Satan tells me I'm a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably since Christ died for sinners. I love that. I've been just chewing on that. When Satan tells me I'm a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably since Christ died for sinners. Because that's the way we respond when we understand these truths in Romans 8. So when you have, the, when you have your adversary, Satan, and starts to accuse you, say, man, you porn addict, you are never going to get over that, are you? You hypocrite, always acting holy, but inside you know what you're doing. Instead of saying, oh, man, yeah, I, I'm just, I'm wrecked, or, or, man, I'm not going to try anymore, or, man, you don't understand, I didn't have a daddy who hugged me enough, or, you know, in, instead of all these different things, or, or instead of, oh, I'm, okay, I'm going to just try harder. I'm gonna... Response is, you know what, I am, I am a sinner. Praise God that Jesus loves sinners. Praise God that Jesus loves sinners. When you're that mom and that da- or that dad, that you just had that worst week with your kids and you just yelled at them like they were some enemy <laughs> out of anger. And you just feel guilt-ridden because you're like, I'm never going to be like that parent, but I've become that parent. <laughs> I was never going to be my dad. I've become my dad. And you feel like a failure. And you feel like you're not like every other parent and you feel so falling short below the standard. At that, those moments, rather than settling into despair, can you see the Christ who says, I love people who fall short. <laughs> I love people who missed the mark. I will give my life for people who feel like they're never going to make it. And you turn to him. When you have the enemy accuse you that you don't read the Bible enough, that you're not fervent enough in your prayer, that you're not sacrificially giving enough, that you're a slob, that you're selfish, that you're messed up, that you don't follow through on your commitments, that you're violent, that you're a hypocrite, you can actually say, you know what? You got me, man. You have got me to a T. Praise Christ that he loves sinners like me. Praise God that he loves people like me that fall short every single moment. 
That he loves people like me who feel like throwing in the towel this week. Feeling like I've got nothing left. And he says, get on my back. I'm the one that's taking you home. And what we're reminded today is that the gospel is not just an idea. It's not just a plan. But it's ultimately a person. It's Jesus. Guys, if Jesus promises to bring you home, you will make it home. If I promise to take you home, I hope I will, but don't guarantee your life on it. (laughs) But if Jesus does, you can trust him that he leaves no one behind. If you are his, if you are God's, he will take you home. And I I just, simple response, I want to invite you to run to his mercy today. If you are a Christian and you've been accused by your sin, Maybe you've got deep envy in your heart. You cannot celebrate anything good happening in anyone else's life because it reminds you how crappy you feel your life is. Maybe you've got deep hate. Maybe, you got, maybe you're really judgmental. Like you, you are so good at pointing out everyone else's faults, you never look at how you've fallen. You're proud. You're arrogant. You're lustful. You're greedy. You're unkind. You're unmerciful join the club and say, praise God that Christ loves me and run to his mercy. Stop trying to run to your own goodness. Stop trying to make excuses, but say, praise God and repent and say, I can't believe this is the God I worship. And I do want to say a word to some of us, again, like we talked about last week, it would be unkind of me to say that these promises are for everyone. So as you look at your heart and you genuinely investigate yourself, ask yourself, do I know God in this way? Do I know the God who I've confessed that I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I've sinned against him, that Jesus died on the cross not as some noble gesture of sacrifice, but he died for me as well? If you've never done that in your life, if, if the answer for you is, hey, what's a good Christian? Oh, I'm going to try better. I'm going to say that's not a Christian. That's a good moralist. That's a good humanist. A Christian is someone who say, you have a problem? You need to get on your face and ask for mercy. Because that's why Jesus died on the cross. I would welcome you. Receive that mercy. Run to his mercy today. Stop trying to run to, stop trying to point to all the ways you've been good this week or all the excuses you have, and rather say, I, you, I get it, I need Jesus. I'm hopeless without Jesus. Jesus, I need you, that you died for me. I get it. And repent of your sin. Repent just a, a fancy way to say, stop where you are and say, Jesus, take my life. I give it up to you. Thank you for dying for me. I want to receive that life now. And if that's you, talk to, talk to a leader here, talk to me, write it down on a card saying, I want to follow Jesus. I want to know more what that's about. And we would love to talk to you about that. Let me, let me um, ask you, can I ask you to stand up with me? I know we've been sitting for a little bit. Can I ask you to stand? And I actually want to give a few minutes of response time before we sing. But uh, before that, can I just ask you to bow your head? Um, Just in a room like this, I'm guessing we are all over the spectrum in terms of who God is in our life Um, and who you're just who you feel you can be with God. And 
some of us, this is like the first place we've ever heard about God. And maybe this is all fresh. Maybe for some of us, we've been hearing about God our whole life. It's become very unfresh. Can I welcome you to receive the mercy of this Jesus? I know for myself this morning, it was just a, a even during singing, just a good time to be reminded because sometimes my biggest critic is myself. Sometimes the biggest uh, tool that the enemy uses in my life